0: Hey there Book Gang, this is Amy Allen Clark from momadvice.com. If this is your first time checking out my show, I'm just so happy to have you here. This weekly podcast is dedicated to the literary tastemakers of the world. These themed episodes are filled with book recommendations focusing on debuts, under-the-radar book choices, and ideas for expanding your stack with backlist book selections. This month's Bookishly Curious episode is, I believe, one of the most important conversations we've had here. Now, today's conversation is with my friend Gay Pollisner, a YA novelist that had a book coming out in 2020 called Jack Kerouac Is Dead to Me. Now, Gay shares about her experience as what is called a mid list author. the publishing problems that arose around the time of her launch. Now, if you haven't heard the term mid-list author before, I really hadn't heard it described as that until our conversation either. A midlist author is one whose books are well-received, but haven't reached what's deemed like a huge commercial success. So when I think about someone with huge commercial success, that would be someone like John Green. Now, this is not to discredit this experience, though, at all, because these works sell really well, and they're often well-known writers within the writing community. To me, these are the kinds of books that I almost always choose for our book club because they're often under the radar and they are spectacularly written. Gay is a perfect example of this because her novel, In the Sight of Stars, was one of our book club picks and she even participated in a book club discussion with us and it is perhaps really why it hurts so much to hear and see about this journey with her book unfolding. I don't think you will walk away from this conversation without a new understanding for the publishing world, the importance of a library purchase with a YA book, and how author advances actually work. Now Gay shows up in the only way I know she knows how, which is vulnerable, authentic, and transparent about her journey. I'd love if you purchased her novel after we have this conversation, but before you do that, you're going to find out what format garners the most in her royalty checks, so don't miss this conversation first. Now, this show is funded through the support of my incredible Patreon community. I could not do this show without your financial support. Conversations like these cannot happen without you. So, I just want to say I'm so so grateful for so many of you for joining in our community, and it really means a lot to me, every single person there. Now, if you missed last week's episode, you're actually sitting on a gold mine because I'm giving you a sneak peek at of the features you're going to be able to unlock with your patreon membership i launched a new show called fully booked which is an exclusive show that shares reviews on all the latest book releases what's happening in the bookish entertainment world and what you can anticipate on store shelves i share the microphone with larry hoffer who is my dear friend and now a regular contributor of the mom advice book game Patreon supporters not only have access to the fully booked show each month, but I also have a playlist of Rose Napolitano-inspired music and a beautiful conversation with Donna Fridas about our January book club book, The Nine Lives of Rose Napolitano. Again, it is just $5 a month, or you can prepay and join me for a year for 10% savings. To learn more, head to patreon.com backslash advice. That is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com backslash momadvice. And if you don't have the funds to necessarily support the show right now, If you could just give me a like or review on this show, that helps me grow and build a new following. And I am so appreciative of all of your feedback on each of these episodes. Now, if you're participating in our book club, this is your reminder today that tonight is our book club chat for the nine lives of Rose Napolitano, and it is happening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Now, if you are not part of our book club, guess what? it's free. You can join by just going to Mom Advice Book Club on Facebook and asking to be part of our group. And I will, of course, approve your membership. And under the events tab is where all of our book club chats live. So be sure to join the book club if you are interested in being a part of these conversations moving forward. And if you want to really immerse yourself, then the Patreon is where you access all of the bonus materials. There are 4,700 readers who love this book club and are part of it. And I would love and welcome your participation in that community too. All right, it's now time to talk about the heartbreaks and hopes found within Pandemic Publishing with my friend, Gaye Pollisner. Hey, booking. This is Amy Ellen Clark from momadvice.com. I am so excited to be joined by Gay Pollinsner to talk about her experience publishing a book during the pandemic. Now, those of you that have not been part of my book club for a long time may not know that we actually picked one of her books for our book club, and Gay joined us for our first and really only because of the pandemic, reading retreat, and got to be our guest author. So this is a bit of a reunion for me and for a few of our readers that were able to attend that event. But today's episode is really focused on her latest release and some upcoming books that she's going to be coming out with. So welcome to the show, Gay. Hi, Amy. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so grateful to be here. And I'm so glad that you and I are
1: already laughing. (laughs)
0: And and, and for those of you, because this will be clipped, three times I got Gay's name wrong, I'm pretty sure, and I wanted to make sure that we had it right. And that is one of the hurdles with podcasting versus writing reviews is that I actually have to say people's book names and character names and their author names out loud. So thank you, Gay, for indulging me in that. So today we want to talk about your challenges in pandemic publishing and what that's looked like for you. I know that as a podcast, we've talked about some things that people are not knowledgeable about. In fact, even I have been learning, I call it being bookishly curious, Mm -hmm. but things like book shortages and printing issues and just getting books out into the world is something that a lot of people were not aware was happening during this time. But I also wanted to get a writer's perspective on what this looked like for you as a writer. So can you tell us a little bit about what happened with your book during the pandemic and how this has differed from your past novels? Sure. So, um, again, thanks
1: for having me, Amy. I, I want to say when I talk about all of this stuff that I am what is known as a midlist author. I really want to recoin a different t- term for that, something that's fancier than that. But so when I talk about stuff, I can only talk about it in the realm that I'm already in. So everything I talk about could have been really different for you know a New York Times best-selling author or anybody who is less best-selling than I am. So I'm just kind of right in that middle area where my books do okay. I continue to get book deals. They get very good critical reviews, but I'm always struggling no matter what as an author. So that's the backdrop that I talk about everything against, but my pandemic experience has been for sure different than most of my prior books, let's say. Actually... I had two, not one book come out in the beginning of the pandemic, which was the worst time you'd want a book to come out. And they weren't supposed to come out close to one another, but I had broken my hand several months before one of the books was supposed to come out. So it got pushed back because I couldn't do revisions because my hand was in a cast. So I ended up with actually two books coming out in Mm -hmm. early of 2020. So the book that you are talking about is my YA crossover to adult title. It's really a 14 and up YA called Jack Kerouac is Dead to Me. And then I also had a middle grade called Seven Clues to Home, which is co-written with my friend Nora Raleigh Baskin, come out in early June. Both of them while schools were closed and libraries were not yet open. So one of my hugest markets, I write literary fiction. So my biggest market is school library. That is the first obvious point of contention. And if you think about my books, Kerouac came out in early April. So we had literally just shut everything down in mid to late March. And Clues, Seven Clues to Home came out in early June. But the launch time for books, the biggest launch time for books is six months to three months beforehand. So libraries were closed, even though they were just opening again for Clues. They were closed in terms of ordering. And I remember reaching out myself to the New York Public Library when I didn't see the book anywhere in its system, saying, you know, where is my book? And there was no response. Nobody was there. You got a a response from the library saying, we're not here. We'll let you know when the library reopens. So that is the biggest impact that I felt.
0: Wow. That is just not even <laughs> anything that I would have thought about. And so I didn't realize that that was part of the problem with the you know pandemic publishing and how many of us are relying on that as a resource. And I know for me personally, I wasn't going to the library as much. I was I was hunkered down at home and I wasn't able to get out and do that. And one of my first like outings after I got my vaccination because I'm immunocompromised is that I went to the library. So I, I remember the thrill of going back, but I would not think about it from the perspective of what's being ordered and what's moving on shelves.
1: Correct. And then, and then that extends, especially for Kerouac, which was my first book that although, yes, it is literary, we thought it was going to have maybe a bigger commercial crossover for me. It had gotten a really almost historically large audio deal from Audible, from Blackstone Publishing. So okay. the audiobook for Jack Kerouac is dead to me, read by Bailey Carr, who I think is just perfect for JL, who's my main character. I've had audiobooks for most of my books. You don't always get an audio deal. But I've had audio books for most of my books, and they're usually a small, again, for a mid-list author, it's usually a small chunk of change, very small chunk of change. Six months before the pandemic or so, when I got the email from my editor about the audiobook for Kerouac, I thought there was a mistake in the number that she had sent me. I was like, wow did you miss a comma? I And when I told my agent, he said the same thing. I've not seen an audio deal. for. I mean, obviously, for someone huge, they probably get audio deals like that. But for someone like me, it was historically large. And so we got very, very excited because we believed that maybe I was going to make that crossover from purely literary, which is my first choice to be. I'm happy to be a literary writer. And I would also love to have some commercial success. And so we were like, "Oh my gosh, look at this audiobook. That is a huge vote of confidence that they think this book is going to move." That was our first like big sign maybe this is going to be a bigger deal. So imagine going from that to nobody my my book launch was canceled you know because it was literally in the 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 week after everything started shutting down I, I remember being like should i do my book launch or not so it was really in the time everything was shutting down but imagine going from that like excitement of this big audio deal and everybody think it's going to be commercial to My book launch is cancelled, libraries are closed, schools are closed, nobody has ordered it because we've launched into things, nobody is reading it, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. I think that there are people who read more during the pandemic, and I think everybody thought we would do more reading during the pandemic, but I don't believe that is the truth, and I've seen some numbers that anecdotally would confirm that for me. And I know myself, I wasn't reading as much during the pandemic, I'm still not reading as much during the pandemic. So all of those things really
0: were like from the peak to the valley. So I I wanna talk to that a little bit because I'm one of the lucky people that gets to be your Facebook friend. I also, you know, have been following you as a writer because we had selected Inside of Stars as our book club selection, and, and that's how we got acquainted with each other. I'm just gonna be honest. When you were sharing about this journey, I, I cried. So you were posting personally about it. And I'm going to get a little bit emotional because I remember sitting down and reading that. And it was so upsetting to hear about your experience, particularly your experience, which happened on Amazon. And I think that we need to talk about what happened with with your book, because I don't think people understand that even, that end of things, because we're talking about the library. But I also want to bring up what happened with Amazon. But I remember that I was like reading your Facebook status out loud to my husband. It was that impactful to me about what you were going through. And I'm an empath, so I was I was taking in and I was feeling all of the things that you were experiencing because you were very open about that journey with your Facebook friends. But I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about what that looks like as an Amazon sale, and what happened with your book where we're seeing that it's not available on shelves and we can't access your book. Is this because of the book shortage? What's happening?
1: So I'm not going to be able to answer that question as technically with all the information as you wish, because I think that many of us authors or all authors are as much in the dark. I didn't even know about the book shortage like you didn't. You would think that maybe there'd be a chain of communication and people would reach out to you and say, look, don't panic. This is going on. But we don't know any of that. And in fairness to editors and agents, I don't think they knew it either. I think, you know, the whole world was in a swirl of the unknown and barely functioning. And I think we all have PTSD from everything we've been through. I truly do. As a general rule, a midlist author like I am, does a lot of our own promotion. Almost all of it except for the first month or two before the book comes out in the month of the book's release. After that, we're all pretty much on our own. And I'm a really good promoter, partially out of necessity. And partially, I actually have an undergrad degree going back many years now. But I have an undergrad degree in marketing and special events. And so I'm able to kind of call that rah-rah side up when I have to. Kerouac was Reeling in the year after the pandemic. I knew it was going to disappear into an abyss after working on it for years if I didn't do something. And so I went on my Facebook page. I was thinking we should have read the post because I don't remember exactly what it said. So I went on my Facebook page and I tried to make an honest post that was also in perspective because in the end, now I'm going to cry. Not about me.
0: You can cry about you. Um, I want to cry about it.
1: No, I'm not going to cry about me. I was going to say in the end, there are people out there who are dying. So a book is not the most important thing. So I was really torn about whether to post about my own publishing woes when there are way more important things going on. And I've worked really hard for my book career and these books. And it makes me sad. They're They're not months worth of work, their years worth of work. So it makes me really sad to think that that work is in some ways wasted if the book is just going to disappear off of shelves. I had gotten a notification from my publisher saying that they were remaindering hard copies and assuring me, and I am doing that in air quotes, but I'm not moving my hand so I don't move my mic. They had assured me that the book wasn't going out of print, but I don't believe it. So in a bit of a panic, I went to my Facebook page and I explained what had happened that due to all things pandemic, nobody really had seen the book. I thought it was a worthy book and that I would really appreciate if anybody had read it and loved it because I knew people had that they maybe share it on their pages or let people know. And I had Some lovely responses and people buying the book. I even had a very influential educator in the the book to education pipeline world say, oh, I loved this book. I want to do a book club with people, which was really nice, not in terms of numbers sold because she's just one person who was going to do a small book club, but because she's so influential. She runs a wonderful blog called Culture of Pedagogy how do you say that word?
0: <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs>
1: so, so anyway, I was so moved and so honored. And that's when the I started seeing that the book wasn't available and getting emails from people saying, I'm trying to buy the book. I can't get it. So I reached out to my publisher and my agent with a note saying, this is really disheartening. I'm trying to save this book and people can't even get it can you help me? Can you tell me what's going on? And, and I got sort of the standard responses, which, which are, I'm sorry, it's not on Amazon, but you can get it on Barnes and Noble, which the author's response is, that's great. And I'd really prefer people buy it from Barnes and Noble, but people don't buy it from Barnes and Noble. They go to Amazon and if they can't get it there, they're out. They move on to the next thing or whatever. I had worse things and that is, you know, part of all of what I had posted on that Facebook post that you saw. The the other thing which was even worse than that was I had a friend reach out to me. I say worse than that because Amazon is always dicey in terms of they mm-hmm. do all sorts of shady, frustrating things about third-party sellers and where the book is available and where it's not and I know that the publisher doesn't always have a ton of control over that. So there is frustrated by Amazon as I am as we are. But I had a friend reach out to her independent bookstore, a big, you know, influential changing hands bookstore. I think they're in Arizona, changing hands. And she ordered it from them. And three days later, got a note from them saying they couldn't get it, that it was discontinued and they couldn't get it. I know you asked me what was my communication with my publisher and agent after that, they didn't respond to my email. It was around the holidays. Maybe they forgot it. Maybe I sent it at a bad time. Maybe they're getting 500 emails like that from all of their authors. Maybe I don't matter. The hard thing is I try not to go to the maybe I don't matter place and that is where artists and authors go. I try to remember that they are struggling as much as we are in their own ways and I know that they are. So, but I know you had asked that question, what was your publisher's response? My publisher's response to the first Amazon freakout was, well, it's still available on Barnes & Noble, and their response to my second freakout, what does this even mean, was they both forgot to even respond to it post-holidays. And at that point, I have not reached out again because the rush of people seeking to buy it in response to my post had slowed down.
0: Yeah, it's really been something interesting for me as someone who is trying to establish a relationship with an independent bookseller was when we were planning out our book club year for example this year there was a whole thing about timing of what books could be ordered for a book club of my size again I'm I'm not like Jenna's book club, I'm not Reese Witherspoon's book club, I'm not running like a big channel where, you know, they're going to be guaranteed so many copies, and so I'm trying to work with an independent bookseller to try to support indie bookstores. Our year with Fables Books had to be planned around who had availability, and so it tended to be the mass market paperback book that people are buying a ton of, but the indie maybe debut authors, the ones that were the under radar selections, the backlist books, those were the ones that we could not seem to organize around. And so we had to push our timelines around or pick different books. And that was my experience, just as someone who's trying to access that. And that is when we had that conversation on the podcast, but also internally, like, I didn't even know this was a thing. And so learning about that process, you know, was just eye-opening for me. But hearing from you about your experience personally with that, as someone who's trying to supply those book club books, is so frustrating and sad and disheartening that you were not able to get that. And I, I will say, we have the same Issue where people do want to buy on Amazon. They say that they want to buy independent. Sometimes that happens, but for the most part, I think it is a convenience factor that you can get it so quickly. Many of us have Prime. I know I do. It's like one of those things that I have a really difficult time with. Like, do I point people to these books on Amazon when I know that that's really what our sales are? Are showing They they are driving the sales. That's where they are going because it is convenient. It, it's just so, so hard to be part of that wheel, like where you can't, I'm like in this hamster wheel where I can't necessarily get out, but you're in it too, like as someone who's writing. Mm-hmm. So I, I really think this is going to be really interesting to a lot of people that they don't necessarily know all that behind the scenes. When I see there's only 10 in stock, to me, that means you have been a huge success <laughs> and now they've run out. So that's what I'm seeing on my screen. Right. So when I went after your Facebook post to look at what's happening with this book, and then I see, oh, they're down to two. That's so great. Right. Like she did it. Right. Her Facebook post called out all these people and people have ordered right. it. And then they're you're doing exactly what you're supposed to. So from my side It looks like they they have to make another order. This is great, great news. Right. I think I also share stuff on Facebook about
1: the real publishing world for that reason as well, which is when you say you're an author, people think you're so successful. And I do try to share the wonderful highlights because Just like sorrow shared is less, joy shared is more. And so I'm lucky enough to have good friends there. And so I try to share some of the really fun, exciting things that happen, not to show off or to brag, but because it's actually more fun to share joy with people who are supportive of you. And then I worry that people think I'm this, you know, famous, rich author, which I'm not. There are many reasons I don't want people to think that. But one of the reasons is is because people are constantly asking me for my books and mm. I need to sell books. It, the way publishing works is if you don't earn out, and I can explain if, you're, if your listeners no, don't know I want you to explain. what earn yeah, out this is your hour. means, but if I don't earn out, my chances of ever getting another traditionally published with the big five, is it now? Are least still five? Um, publishers goes exponentially down. I mean, one of the first things an editor asks, especially if it's a new editor, about an author when they're interested in a manuscript is, let me look at their past sales and make sure I'm picking up somebody who moves copies of books and has a following. So if I don't sell these books, it becomes exponentially harder to ever sell another book. Just to be clear about what earning out means is the way that authors get paid is when you sell a manuscript to a publisher, they pay, just like in the music industry, what's called an advance. So you'll get an advance on the book, you'll get a set sum, let's just call it for ease, say $10,000 on a book that you've been working on for maybe a couple of years. So even though 10,000 might be a nice number, if you figure that's what I've earned in Two years, and I'm not even saying that's my number, but it's around there. I'm earning five thousand dollars a year, so let me just run to Bora Bora on my vacation with that, right? If that publisher pays me ten thousand dollars when the book goes on sale, I also get a royalty as author, right? Whatever percentage royalty that is, I can uh, somewhere between seven and ten percent of retail list price after they get paid back their expenses. I don't actually get that royalty. Until they take their $10,000 back. That's how the author's royalty works. So until I sell like between 10 and 20,000 copies of the book, I don't ever see another penny. I'm
0: glad that you you did illustrate that because I wrote a nonfiction book and... I didn't really understand when I got that big advance. It's like, oh, here's the start of all the good things to come, right? Because you get a nice lump sum, which you are, I don't know, most people can't necessarily live off of that lump sum, but it is a lump sum that is a generous lump sum. And then the royalty checks, at least for me, didn't really deliver. I mean, I might be lucky if I got like a dollar and 50 cents. I I will be honest yeah. about that, which the lump sum was generous, but then I had to try to move the the copies and the whole thing about being your own PR agent too. I mean, it's not just doing the book itself. It's that you have to be the one to do all the author interviews to try to get your book mentioned. I want to bring up because, you know, Bookstagram is a huge community, which we've been trying to introduce our readers to, that we rely on word of mouth sales for those books. And asking an author to give a book when you don't have like a huge, like mass, you know, produced book is a lot to ask of someone and that it is better if you can to buy that book and support that author so that they do have that sale.
1: Right, exactly. And yet, how can books grammars pay for all the books that they're like, everybody is reeling and especially again, going back to the fact that I'm big school library, how can teachers pay for these books?
0: because we don't pay teachers enough. Well, it's funny because I actually had requested a book from Robbie Couch because uh, he was someone that one of my guests, Larry, who's going to be a contributor on our team, had talked about and raved about, and he had been trying to get a galley copy of this book. But because I am someone who also had to write a book and then try to sell books and people ask for free books, I wrote him about Larry, but said, may I please send you money and shipping expenses to like send a book to him? I'm happy to buy it. I know that you only have X amount of copies. And he did send it. But I don't think that people realize that if they've never done that process, that you do get a certain amount set aside that you can gift as part of like usually your signing deal. But then after that, that comes out of your money to try to get people to purchase that book or promote your book for you.
1: Right. And as I often say, it's not the book. I'm happy to give you the book. It's the postage. (laughs) You know, I've gone to the book. I've gone to the post office with, you know, a couple of envelopes full of books for people who are kind enough to want to help support me. So I'm sending them books and I spend $30 at the post office. And then I do the calculation of how many books I will have to sell at a $1 royalty In order to ever just get my postage back. It is not a lucrative career. And, you know, most of us do not go. I mean, none of us go into it for the money. And if you think you have, you know, ha ha ha. (laughs) Most of us do other things to supplement our income. And yet we're so grateful when people want to support us that it really is a conundrum of of how to balance it all.
0: Yeah, so You know, talking about this experience, I also wanted to talk about, because this is something that I was researching for our book shortage episode, that this impacts authors with their future book deals and opportunities. If a book doesn't sell well, or it shows that it doesn't sell well based on what's been happening behind the scenes, how is this going to impact future opportunities? Is your publishing house going to be understanding because everyone has been in the same boat in 2020? Or how do you feel like this experience will change that next experience for you? I think that the
1: answer to that, is your publisher going to be understanding is yes and no. Look, if I write the most brilliant book they have ever seen, or it really hits that sweet spot and they think it's going to be commercially successful, then this will not affect anything, except to the extent that the entire book industry is affected. So I don't know how the whole industry is going to be affected in terms of their survival. But in terms of my relationship with the publisher, if I write the next great American novel, something so unique and different and compelling, and what they are looking for, and they think it's going to have commercial appeal, is it going to affect my ability to sell another book to them? No. If I write a lovely, beautiful book of the ilk that I have been writing because I'm still working on trying to figure out how to write that other thing I just described, yes, it will affect it. And I honestly don't believe I will have another deal with the publisher who I released, The Memory of Things, then Inside of Stars, and then Jack Kerouac is dead to me with. That editor who is a wonderful human being and gave me you know and a wonderful chance with the memory of things which has done very well by them she has some huge commercial bestsellers now and I think that's where she is now anyway and I think that Inside of Stars and then Kerouac not doing as well Inside of Stars has earned out Kerouac actually funny story Kerouac has earned out because of the audio deal. Mm. And here's the crazy thing about that. Remember I told you that they had this really uncharacteristic for a midlist YA author audio deal? I, of course, didn't see a penny of it because they got their 50%, which was a nice chunk of change, and my 50% went to cover my advance. So the bad news about that is that <laughs> You get this huge, I mean, it wasn't huge, it wasn't hundreds of thousands of dollars. But like I say, a typical audio deal can be two grand. It's not a, a lot of money. So this one was, I'll tell you what it was, it was $20,000 audio deal. I didn't see a penny uh. of it, because it went to pay back my advance. So Kerouac actually earned out, but it hasn't sold many copies in terms of the book itself.
0: So this is an impact your sales when we're listening to audiobooks. Is this like going to add in? Because I really don't know what that experience is. If we're purchasing audiobooks, do you see royalties yes. from that? Yes. You in, do. Yes. And in fact, my royalty from
1: audio copies is bigger than my royalty on a hardcover. But it's the same deal that I believe that the audiobook company gets to recoup their advance. It's always called an advance from their sales before I see a royalty. And so I probably won't see a royalty on the audiobook either because the book itself has just fallen into an abyss. I keep using that word because that's really with Kerouac, what it felt like. I will say if you're an audiobook listener like I am, I do love the audiobook version of Jack Kerouac is Dead to Me and, and Bailey Carr's interpretation of J.L. I just think she does a really right reading
0: for the book. So. Well, I, I plan to listen to that now because I have been looking for my next audiobook. <laughs> and I know a lot of our mom readers especially love to do audiobooks while they're waiting for kids and things like that. And audiobooks is a preferred mechanism for reading and getting back to reading. So I'm glad that you are mentioning that. I'm also happy to hear that this is actually a positive thing because sometimes when I feel like I'm taking reading shortcuts maybe that's shortcutting the author too. And so it's good to hear that that actually gives you more than what we would have done with a print copy.
1: Yeah, no, uh, audiobooks are great for all of us. For anybody listening, audiobooks are reading. And in fact, I've read stuff that our brains retain the story longer when we listen on audiobook than when we read it. And I know I'm experiencing that kind of thing where when I finish a book, even a book that I've loved, six months later, I can't even tell you what it was about. I have a visceral feeling in my you know, heart about why I loved it, but I can't tell you the details of it. And they feel with audiobook that we sometimes hold on to the details of it longer. But audiobooks are reading. If your kids have books that they need to read for school, let them do it by audio if they're not great. I'm putting that in air quotes readers audiobooks are awesome and i'm so glad that i discovered them because i think i used to be one of the people who didn't hold them in as high esteem as Mm -hmm. actual air
0: quotes reading well i'm glad you brought that up and i also want to talk about your next book that you have been writing a middle grade book what has that experience been like differing from writing in ya and then moving into middle grade Is it a different experience altogether?
1: Very, I think. Other people might answer that differently. I feel like there's a bigger leap between middle grade and young adult than between young adult and adult. By the time we're in our teens, we're starting to feel many of the same feelings we will feel for the rest of our lives as adults, including things like sexual desire, lust, longing, anxiety, depression, pain. So when I write young adult, I often marvel at the fact that many of the things and feelings I'm writing about are still the same things I'm grappling with as a older than I want to be adult. With middle grade, I think kids are still at that place of innocence, that place where they're not feeling the extreme emotions and awareness of their world yet. They're just starting to, which is the enjoyable part of middle grade. They're just getting there, but they're not there yet. And their families and schools and the adults in their lives are that much more involved in their lives. So there are differences in the freedoms that they have in a middle grade book to go off and create their own drama and chaos, and who helps them to cope with it when they do. I love it.
0: I love that you're sharing this experience with us. I know that this is a very vulnerable thing. And I know that we talked about before, I wanted you to share your story yourself, because one, I'm hoping we can drive lots more readers to your book, and especially this audiobook that you have been talking up, because I think it's really important. I want to say that you are a gifted writer. Thank you. And I have felt so lucky to have fallen up in love with your other books. I can't wait to read this one. And I hope that there are ways that we can start showing up better for writers and knowing these things is going to really weigh on our hearts when we're making purchases, when we are thinking about how we ask for things from writers and how we support you. Where is most helpful for reviewing? Because I know a lot of people have profiles on a lot of different channels. Is there anything in particular that's most helpful to you for feedback? An Amazon review is always
1: important because it triggers an algorithm. Every time new reviews go up, the more reviews you have, they say that 50 reviews is the first magic number to trigger any algorithms whatsoever on Amazon I think that sharing a Facebook post or an Instagram post, if you're there on a book that you love is really compelling, especially if you share the reasons why you love it. And then, you know, things like book clubs, because if you have a book club of five or seven people and a couple of the people in that book club love the book and tell two friends and so on and so on, that's always an awesome thing. I will mention that. If you do a book club with any of my books, and you want me to zoom in and do a quick Q and A with you, I, am, I do that quite often, and I love it. And I especially love—I love kids, and I love the teens that I talk to. But there's really something emotional about doing an adult book club and getting to talk to grown-ups as they revisit. Some of the formative things that happen to us in our lives. So for example, in Jack Kerouac is dead to me, which is really a female coming of age story. When I say female, I mean the story of how a, a girl copes with her burgeoning sexuality and how other girls judge her in the process mm-hmm. and how girls were still sadly very good at abandoning one another and judging one another. And I feel so strongly that we would have so much more power if we didn't do that, if we stood up for one another and supported one another. And when I go into high schools, I often say to the girls, you don't have to like one another at all. You don't have to be friends, but don't tear each other down. Stand up for one another and support one another. And we will we will not be vulnerable to some of the Me Too misogynistic things that I think we continue to be vulnerable to without looking at the role women against women tearing down plays in all of that. And that's what Jack Kerouac is really doing. When I do book clubs with women who have read the book, many of us are still dealing with the fallout from that. And so Mm -hmm. it's really moving. I cherish it because we all still need to have those conversations or many of us still need to have those conversations. I know I do and as,
0: <laughs> yeah and as someone who got to have that experience with you, I really really I'm not just saying that because you're here it really made such a magical book club moment for our reading retreat because we were, wanting to connect with an author that we could have a chat with. And I just remember us all gathering around to watch you on screen. At that time, it was kind of very novel (laughs) to sit on a screen with someone and do that. And now that so many book clubs have had to move towards those Zoom meetings and Zoom calls, authors are really, really comfortable with that format now. And Gay's amazing. Even before that was like a comfort thing, she came to our meeting and it was so impactful to hear your experience about writing it and getting to ask our own questions. It was really an amazing experience. I hope that people will consider Gay's Books for their book club because that really will elevate any type of reading experience that you have. And not a lot of people probably take advantage of that as much as they should. Well, and it's funny too, because what I don't realize is because
1: I'm just me, is that People are intimidated to do that. So I just think they don't want to. But then I realize that I'm saying this and they're like, yeah, she doesn't really mean I can email her and ask her to zoom into my book club. And I'm telling you, you can. <laughs> so if you want my email for a book club, reach out to Amy and she will give it to you because I mean it. It's really the discussions are so
0: healing. Yes, they were amazing. Every author that we've had an interaction with has elevated any type of reading experience and i say that if you love the book or you hate the book or any type of discussion because once you hear an author's story about why they wrote it and understand the process of that it changes whatever feeling you have honestly it adds like two more stars to any review that i have because i know now where they were coming from with their writing and i think that your books are so great for book clubs the way that you're talking about being aware of those things that you've gone through, I love love coming of age. I love YA. I would read a YA book over any other kind of book any day because I it gives me all the Judy Bloom feelings, <laughs> and I I like I'm reminded about how vulnerable and and the difficulties with all of the things like things that you might you know, not be feeling now, but there's still a little part of your heart that will always feel that way or understand what had happened. So true. Gay, okay, thank you for sharing this with our readers. Where can they connect with you if they want to learn more and buy your books? Thanks, Amy. So
1: on most social media, I am at Gaypol. So G-A-E-P-O-L is where you can find me on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, TikTok, although I really don't do much on TikTok except share my son's music. <laughs> on Facebook, I have an author page is Gay Polisner, author on Facebook. And then my private page, which is what Amy is talking about when she refers to seeing things and getting to know me is a separate page under my, my name as well, Gay Polisner. If you choose to friend me there, Know that I curse a lot. I post political
0: things. I'm very real and true, and I leave that up to you. <laughs> and I love it. And I'm here for it. And also, everyone needs to go out and buy Jack Kerouac. Is dead to me. I am. So, so appreciative of everything that you're doing out in the world. What is the name of your new middle grade that we can be expecting to? I realize we just must have gone off on a tangent. So thank you for that. (laughs) The
1: middle grade that's coming out with my friend Nora in April is called Consider the Octopus. And it is a romp. You're welcome. We decided that kids needed some funny, hilarious comedy, mistaken identity, farce, humor in their lives right now. So while it tackles difficult environmental issues and it literally takes place at the Great Pacific Garbage Patch in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on a research ship, it is hilariously, I hope, funny. It makes us laugh out loud every time we have to go reread it for a different phase of the publishing process, copy editing, etc we're still laughing at some of the stuff in there. We hope that we have put something out there that will empower kids. It celebrates the power of kids. It celebrates the kids who are out there changing the world and stepping up to clean up some of the mess that the grown-ups have made and it's really a funny, empowering, hopeful book that also provides some good information about what's going on with our oceans and that we need to protect
0: them and save them. Okay, this sounds perfect. (laughs) And I can't wait. And I'm so excited to see you continue on this journey. And I will forever be a fan.
1: Thank you. I'm a fan of yours too. You know that.
0: (laughs) I know. And I appreciate that. Thank you for showing up.
1: (laughs) Thanks for having me, Amy.